0: Welcome to Come Rain or Shine, podcast of the Southwest Climate Hub and the Southwest Climate Adaptation Science Center, or CASC. I'm Emily Elias, Director of the Southwest Climate Hub.
1: And I'm Sarah Leroy, Science Communications Coordinator for the Southwest CASC. Here, we share recent advances in climate science, weather, and climate adaptation, and innovative practices to support resilient landscapes and communities.
0: We believe sharing this information will strengthen our collective ability to respond to impacts of climate change in one of the hottest and driest regions of the world. Hi, and welcome to part two of our two-episode feature on viticulture. In part one, we discuss the basics of viticulture and why we might be interested in it. In this episode, we'll delve into the effects of climate, weather, and our changing future on viticulture. So I have a question for all three of you. Do you think growers are already seeing impacts from weather variability and climate change? And we'll go ahead and start with Jeremy first on this question.
2: Yes, without a doubt, Uh, climate change is impacting viticulture and wine grape growing uh, around the world. Uh, And some of the reading that I've been doing uh, over the past couple of years, there's been documentation from Europe, for example, where the growing season is starting two to three weeks earlier. uh, If not a little bit more, perhaps a little bit less, but you know, it's starting earlier because of warming regional temperatures. And what's that, what that's doing is, well, first it depends on where you're growing the grapes, whether it's a relatively warm region or a relatively cool region. Uh, But what that's doing with the grapes in the case of warm regions, for example, is that, Because the growing season's starting earlier, the uh, roughly month worth of ripening uh, right before harvest is now shifting from, say, early fall, late summer, more into squarely being in summer. And that means relatively hotter ripening conditions. And since temperature can affect the quality and composition of grapes in many different ways, uh, if you're thinking of acidity, sugar, some of the flavor and aroma compounds, uh those types of things which all are going to react to temperature kind of on a semi-independent time step. It's changing the nature of the wine. Uh just from the simple fact of the growing season starting earlier. Uh acidity is coming in lower, sugars are coming in higher. Higher sugars means more alcohol in the uh the end product and some of that can be attenuated in the um in the winery. But still, you know, the vast majority of what your wine ends up being is what comes out of the vineyard. And so some of these effects we're seeing already from climate change are impacting the quality and the composition of the wines that are ultimately produced.
0: Thank you. Um, Carrie or Andy, did you want to add on to that?
3: I guess I could say there are some advantages, too. So one of the things you didn't want to do 20 years ago in Germany was drink a lot of red wine because it wasn't very good. Again, it ripened too late. Uh, It wasn't in that window. And now with the warming conditions, which are literally, as as Jeremy said, uh, four four weeks sometimes earlier than it had been in the past, uh, those varieties are ripening. And there's a whole new effort to to get more red wines into Germany and and, and make that stronger. There's some, some, some... benefits here and there, I guess, <laughs> not many perhaps, uh, and it's, it's opened up a whole new area of, of adapting to this early ripening cycle and getting things ripe in the middle of the summertime, I think, is, is one of the big problems. How do you avoid that? And in fact, in some of the tropical regions of the world, we can fruit grapes three times a year by careful pruning the irrigation and fertilization practices. The vines don't live very long, but they, ha- they can be tremendously productive. And two of those cycles are awfully, uh, oftentimes just dropped on the ground and they're not utilized for wine production or food production at all, because they're timing the one cycle to a drier climate most of the time, drier and warmer in some situations as well, to, to, to function that way. And we'll start playing tricks like that through pruning with with, uh, with cultivation in other parts of the world too.
0: Sherry, did you want to add anything?
4: Uh, yes, thank you, Emily. Um, I think that what I'm observing in response to some of the increases in temperature are responses from the industry that are willing to try new practices that were less palatable uh, even five to 10 years ago. So um, I've seen that there's increasing interest in using shade cloth in the canopy, looking at different kinds of material that can reduce the temperature. And it's a lot of labor that would have to go into that. It's an, it's an extra cost, but it looks, like some research um, from the Department of and Treenology at UC Davis is showing that that could be a way to decrease some of the heat load, um, depending on the price point for that particular operation, and then Another thing that I'm also observing is that there is increasing interest in using degraded waters for irrigation. So some of the work that we've been doing is looking at how different kinds of saline waters can be used for irrigation and which soil types are more resilient or resistant to degradation from using these um, poor water uh, sources from the winery or from other um, municipal effluent sources.
3: That in fact, uh, what Kerry mentioning is mentioning is a very interesting and highly anticipated practice: <laughs> being able to use irrigation water in a micro sprinkler sort of environment to cool for cool vineyards through evaporation. It's been done a lot in the desert already, and and uh, it's slowly marching its way north as the, as the climate changes as we go. But it's 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 also sort of uh, slowed and hindered by the fact that the quality of water, number one, and number two it's evaporating and it's on the leaves and it's damaging the leaves as well sometimes. So it's, it's, it's an interesting trade-off as it goes along.
4: Thank you. I wanted to ask Andy a follow-up question if, if it's appropriate to discuss an antidote about how they use irrigation water to force dormancy and bring grapes out of dormancy in table grapes. Um, is that a possibility for wine grapes or is that mainly a table grape um, practice?
3: Uh, and that changes that much and we get those temperatures and wine grapes where we may be in bigger trouble. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about Arizona again. Um, but yeah, yeah, it, it could be used and it could be, uh, I think pruning is a more a valuable tool in terms of timing and, and, and changing the cycle, and the chronological cycle. It's like, it'll, it'll depend upon utilizing more, more water though, oftentimes, and controlling growth more intensively, which, which will be problem, problematic too. But, yeah, water quality is going to be a big component, and availability, for that matter, right? So water is not getting any easier to find. It's, it, it's environmentally uh, and politically uh, and environmentally largely regulated, and it should be. Uh, it's, it's needed for everything, uh, but it, but one of the things that's not really needed needed on the planet is more wine in many ways. <laughs> so it's going to be hard to argue for a whole lot more water for for wine grape viticulture in some spots.
1: That's a, a perfect segue, Andy, to, to talk about future climate change, right? Um, and so, you know, I guess the question is, what kinds of future impacts might growers expect to see from climate change? And you, you touched on water availability, right? So more severe droughts, I imagine that's going to become a concern. Um, but maybe, you know, if you could speak to, um, you know, could we expect to see changes to the types of wines produced, right? If, you know, certain regions, you know, will not become viable for, for grapes, certain grapes to be grown there anymore. Um, and then one more question to add on to that. And Andy, you touched on this too, but might there be any positive impacts of climate change as well? So, um, I guess I'll just let anyone jump in really if you want to. Take a stab at that.
3: One of the components, I think, is is temperature. Again, we go back to that. Uh, And in this case, it'll be changing the way we have disease cycles and pests that vector those diseases. And one of the classic examples is Pierce's disease. So uh, it's a bacterial disease from the southern United States. It's very prevalent all through Mexico and into Central America. And it kills grapevines. There are very few diseases that kill grapevines outright. And this is, this is one of them. The other ones are much slower and more lingering, and and eventually it kills them economically before it kills them physically. But this is one that kills them physically pretty quickly. And interestingly enough, we've we've developed new varieties that five new varieties that have very strong resistance and pretty good wine quality. But getting them to the next step, which is marketing and and promotion and all the rest, is the tricky part. And will people really use them? And it'll depend on what happens with Pierce's disease. It could get worse, and it could get better. And it depends really probably mostly on rainfall. So if climate change is coincidental with drier conditions, that's going to be a very different scenario than climate change being coincidental with wetter conditions. And I don't think you can really predict at this point, particularly from the, the rainfall perspective, um, what's going to happen, which, which of those two scenarios are going to play out together at the same time. Um,
1: so Jeremy, how about, how about your work?
2: The more and more I, Read about uh, climate change and viticulture in the coming decades. uh, The more I realize the actual situation and how individual locations adapt to the changing conditions is going to be pretty complicated. We've been mentioning a lot of different aspects, a lot of different tools, adaptation tools that can come into play from canopy management, from pruning schedules uh, to which varieties are you're actually putting in the ground? Uh, are they the top 10, 15 that we've been using for the past few decades? Or are they some of these other ones from the two to 3,000 varieties that are out there that uh, you're going to be using? And how well or how healthy they can remain under changing conditions uh, is an open question. Uh, certainly when it comes from a grower's perspective, um, you're not going to want to tell them that it's not going to be viable there. And so you ought to be really sure you know that answer before you even approach it, uh, answering that question with the grower. But I think that that, even though it overshadows the conversation, you know, is it viable or is it not? Um, I don't think it's the topic or the topics that we need to be focusing on right now. I think a lot of these adaptation tools, diversity of approaches, uh, they're going to be what we need to focus on right now in order to progress through the coming decades and try to give the industry as much, as good of a chance of being successful as we can.
0: That leads me to another question uh, for Jeremy that actually pertains to everyone. And it's the question of climate analogs. So you're in Arizona and certainly most everything is irrigated there, I would imagine. Um, but with some pretty high temperatures. And so it makes me wonder if there could be things that you're, that growers are learning in Arizona that could inform wine growing and wine production in California. Any thoughts on that?
2: Personally, I think there's a big opportunity for Arizona viticulture on this subject. Uh, if you look at Europe, for example, where are they looking to? As far as, as you put it, a climate analog, where are they, where they expect to be in 20, 30 years? Where is that today? And where are they making wine and producing wine grapes? Well, they're looking to Israel as an example. Uh, Australia is another one that serves as an example, right? I think Arizona viticulture, where they grow the vast majority of grapes in the state right now is at the warm and dry end of the spectrum, possible conditions under which you can grow wine grapes. And they have a big opportunity there to develop the knowledge, develop the technical capabilities, the management of the vineyards, the types of wines that are produced, what's done in the winery to you know, produce a quality product under such hot, warm and dry conditions. Uh, they really have a chance to be be an example uh, for these other regions that might be heading towards these hot, hotter and drier conditions that we already have here.
1: Mary, do you have anything to add to, to what Jeremy and Andy have, have talked about future climate change?
4: Right now, there's a large push to promote practices that can improve healthy soils, which is looking at the chemical, biological, and physical interactions in the soil to promote and support a productive agricultural system. So Climate analogs are useful in that context to understand what we can achieve or how the healthy soil might change in a future climate and what kinds of metrics or what kinds of standards we might be able to achieve. So for example, I might look to the Paso Robles region to understand what dry, hot conditions in California with limited water availability might look like for a soil environment and then if we know that those conditions will be present in 30 to 50 years in a wine grape growing region in northern california and i'm not saying that it will be as an example that we would be able to help growers know what a reasonable uh, standard would be um, in that vineyard in 30 to 50 years so that's that's
1: how i would use climate
4: analogs um, if i if i were you know
1: Thanks, Carrie. So my next question here is for Jeremy. And um, Jeremy, you mentioned in part one that you and colleagues are working to make climate information more accessible to growers in order to better support their decisions that you know that they have to make, such as selecting sites and cultivars. Um, so could you describe this project just a little bit more and maybe discuss ways that you're getting this climate information to the growers in Arizona?
2: I think to date, the uh climate viticulture work I've been doing has really been made up of two parts. And and one of them has been establishing relationships with the growers, uh, as well as with colleagues uh, through some of the projects uh, that I've been working on the past couple of years, funded through entities like the Climate Assessment for the Southwest. So when I got started in the climate viticulture work, I actually didn't know anybody in the industry, and I don't think anybody in the industry knew me either. Uh, so it was a bit of a slow start. And slowly but surely, I got it to a hold uh, through presenting at and attending state viticulture symposia. Um, and from there, I've taken it in a direction where we have been able to now do growing season and review workshops. I have a monthly climate viticulture newsletter that I send out to growers that have subscribed. I've also developed relationships enough with some of the growers to where I'm working with them individually. Data analysis in some way, shape, or form where we're putting together some type of climate information. Sometimes it's in combination with data from their vineyard, phenological observations, for example, what dates, when the growing season started, trying to answer the questions that they have as, as they go about the work in the vineyard from year to year. Uh, Another big part of of the project so far has been continually asking myself, you know, putting myself in a grower's shoes or winemaker's shoes and continually asking myself, how is this piece of climate information going to help me with what I'm doing in the vineyard? And so it's really required me to learn a lot about vine phenology, learn a lot about vine physiology, and even winemaking, fruit quality composition, uh, to see what matters and to see where aspects of weather and climate, like temperature, really plug into the growing season and some of the decisions that growers are making in the vineyard. And so even though that's taken a lot of extra effort, I think – by framing the climate information in that way, in the context of vine phenology or physiology or fruit composition, um, I'm able to get that information that much closer to how a grower or a winemaker is actually thinking. And I think in terms of what I do, uh, that's a step in the right direction.
0: Thanks, Jeremy. Harry, did you have something you'd like to add?
4: I just would like to comment on Jeremy. That was a really nice description of how to um, engage with the industry. In my experience, working with growers um, is also trying to understand what's the entry point and what's the the point that matters. And so when I began my career working in looking at the effects of vineyard floor management on nutrient cycling and improvements in soil organic matter and how what the microbes are doing, I actually really didn't talk too much about that. I wanted to understand um, the entry point was how do these practices reduce erosion? How do they affect water management in the vineyard? And then all of the other effects on soil health were just a side benefit. And slowly, for multiple reasons, both looking at the California Department of Food and Agriculture Healthy Soils Programme, uh, work by USDA, and NRCS, and others at, at UC Davis. And then just, there's this, a lot of um, focus right now on looking at how these management practices improve soil health. And so uh, there's a lot of momentum there. So now that seems to be the main focus. But again, I think I, I like the way that Jeremy phrased you have to understand uh, what matters to the growers and find the the right entry point to start communicating and, and working with them. So it's a, definitely a long-term relationship. And I would say that Andy is definitely uh, can like the proof is in the pudding. There's, there's Andy, you know, he's, he's got a great relationship with the industry. And I think that um, having been his neighbor next door at work, my office was next to his for a long time that uh, I was able to to see
0: that um, on a daily basis. Thanks, Carrie. And that leads um, right into my next question of Andy, which is really, I feel like you have a, a strong and deep knowledge of viticulture in California. And I think that I would be curious about if we're missing some simple solutions. So I know those relationships with growers are really important, but um, what have you seen over time? How is that knowledge built? And for the industry and for growers, are we missing some simple solutions? I know we talked about shade cloth and irrigation, water and using more saline water, but what else might we be missing?
3: So that's that's a, a good question, sort of sums it up and it comes back to the idea of diversity again. And and what we're missing is the varieties. We're missing utilizing things that's already adapted. And they were uh, the first thing our department did that's coming out of Prohibition many years ago was evaluate hundreds of wine varieties for where they should grow best across the state. There's a massive work that was done by Amarine and and, and others. It was just tremendous. And we've ignored it. <laughs> so it really just said, which of these varieties will do best in which region? Why will they do best? And it was doing basing that on phenological measurements and ripening and flowering dates, all the same sort of stuff. And we just shelved it, essentially, and we've gone towards this path that's been largely directed by European marketing organizations that says that these 10, 15 varieties will be the best. (laughs) And it's been sort of a a countrywide decision there, and it's made viticulture and marketing of viticultural products easier, but it hasn't really encouraged us to use the the diversity we have available. So I think that that's easy enough to solve and, and easily done. And I, I tell my students frequently that, that viticulture is the most primitive form of horticulture that exists. We've made no advances in our plant material, and we're happy about it. <laughs> so it's it's peculiar. And I think that climate change will really open the door to exploring this more effectively, thinking about is it smarter to breed new varieties, which, of course, is the right answer if you're a great breeder, uh, and, or is it smarter to utilize what exists and, and do a better job of characterizing how, how and why it exists where, where it is. So I think that's, to me, that's, climate change is going to be exciting. Too bad I'm retiring. So it's <laughs> it's uh it's one of those things that will take another 10, 20 years to address from a breeding perspective, but it'll take at least that long to assess from a just variety uh adaptation and relationship to soils and rootstocks. We didn't talk about rootstocks at all. They have a big role as well. creation, all those things. I think the tools are already there and they're just waiting to be used, which is a, exciting. It's exciting. It's not. It's not unfathomable that, that we, we can't approach, and there can't be a solution to this. We're certainly going to be drinking wine still, but it'll be different wine, and, and I think that'll be positive overall.
0: A really positive. Um, positive note to end on here. Thinking about you know where where to go from here, maybe how to expand the what we currently grow and consume. Um, and I wonder. You mentioned we hadn't talked about rootstocks at all. Did, did you want to? Share a bit about that before we close.
3: Um, so there's two perspectives for rootstocks. One is controlling uh, biotic problems, pest problems, and, and disease problems. And we've been working on that. I've been working on that for more than 30 years. <laughs> and we're, we're moving towards a few solutions. There's also that adapting to abiotic problems. Uh, and those would be mostly water availability and, and how do they tolerate drought. Uh, salinity is 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 coupled hand in hand with with uh, with drought and wherever we have southwestern conditions, we're going to have salinity problems too. Uh, so as we use more water, we increase the salinity problem. We've recently found um uh, species of grapes from the Red River of Texas that grow in twelve percent seawater. so it's uh, pretty remarkable. They're actually physically not not dying, but they're actually growing in those conditions. So the problem now is to turn that into a rootstock. Not only does it have to resist uh, saline conditions, it has to tolerate both pests and disease in those situations, and it has to grow well enough to be propagated and, and generate more, more material from a nursery perspective. So it's it's actually not. It's very complicated. Rootstocks at first blush seem to be the simpler solution, but it, it, as you dig into them, uh, there's so many different interactions that, that come into play that it's hard to keep them all in check sometimes. But it, it, it offers a good chance to address particularly the The drought and the salinity issues, I think, are easily addressed through stocks over time. Uh, the, a few of the others may be trickier. They also help with phenologically, too. And they were selected originally for Northern European conditions or Southern European conditions. And it was mostly based upon targeting ripening and the extent of the growing season and adaptation to, to the rainfall in those areas. So. Um, we have a lot of tools, again, within the rootstock. There are hundreds still available, and then we, we use fewer and fewer. It's the same perspective again. The poor nursery stuck with the, the task of maintaining an inventory for people to buy, and most years they don't buy it. So um, uh, the nurseries have been trying to winnow down that material as much as possible as well.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you all for this glimpse into a pretty complicated and complex and fascinating industry um, and all of the different aspects or angles that um, you're, you're approaching to address some of the challenges and to work with producers. And we're at the point where we look for any last thoughts. So, Carrie, is there anything that you'd like to add that we didn't touch on?
4: Thank you, Emily. Uh, my only final thoughts are that I'm really pleased to have met a new colleague, Jeremy Weiss, today, and also really happy that I live in the same town as Andy, so that when I have a question, I can show up on his at his doorstep and ask him. <laughs> so, so since I'll be working in this career for just a little bit longer.
0: Excellent, thank you, Carrie. I'm um, Jeremy. Any final thoughts?
2: Well, I'm certainly uh lucky and happy to have met Andrew and Carrie today. Uh we have some colleagues and I have a two-day workshop coming up for the State Viticulture Conference probably in the fall, big asterisk there because of the pandemic, in which we're doing basically a variety evaluation, not a physical one out in the vineyard, but one where we're starting to get a list of, hey, what do we want to try? What are we already trying that's working well? What are we already trying that's not working well? What are we missing? And so you know, the conversation about all these varieties that are out there, the different root stocks that are available, issues with the soil, all that's going to be, uh I think, on the topic menu for that workshop now. And uh if you're wanting to attend, uh, let me know and we'll keep you in the loop as far as when and where it occurs.
0: Excellent. A lot of uncertainty out there, but something to look forward to. So thanks, Jeremy. Andy, any last thoughts?
3: Well, m- maybe not, although uh, the um, a lot of the things we're breeding for now are utilizing species from the Southwest, and particularly Vitus arizonica, which curiously enough is from Arizona. <laughs> and it uh, has remarkable characteristics, uh, disease and pest, and, and potential for, for the future as we go along. So. Maybe Jeremy and I will bump into each other on the hills and slopes of, of the various sky islands of, of Arizona and uh, hunt down these grapevines. So they're, they're plentiful. They're all over the place in Arizona, too.
4: Andy, I just want to check in and make sure that you're not jumping any fences still <laughs> so to get that grapevine uh, germplasm. I'm,
3: I, I've jumped fewer fences as the years go on, so it's, it's getting a less pervasive activity. But I have my botanist license. I showed people this is my botanist license. <laughs>
0: That might help in some situations, I suppose. (laughs) Well, thank you all so much for um, spending some time with us and talking about viticulture and giving us some information to think about as we go forward. And this concludes our podcast. Thank you, everybody.
2: Thanks. That was fun. Good conversation.
0: Thanks for listening to Come Rain
1: or Shine, podcast of the USDA Southwest Climate Hub and the DOI Southwest Climate Adaptation Science Center. If you liked this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, like, or follow for more great episodes. If you want more information, have any questions for the speakers, or would like to offer feedback, please visit climatehubs.usda.gov or SWCASC dot arizona dot edu our sincere thanks
0: to usda agricultural research service the sustainable southwest beef project and the u.s geological survey for supporting this podcast